But so, okay, so tonight, again, we're still not quite at any attributes of God. We have to cover one more really, really important foundation. Before we can talk about the attributes of God, we have to ask ourselves a question, does God even exist? Are we actually even talking about anything when we talk about God? Um, I'm really hoping that we're able to actually get through all of this tonight. This is kind of one that I'm assuming is safe to just presuppose this and actually get to the attributes of God. So I know that the people in this room don't necessarily need a whole lot of proving that God exists. But whenever you do an Attributes of God series, this is always one they bring up. If you were to buy some books on the Attributes of God, the really, really good ones are going to have a section on the existence of God. Does He even exist? So this really is an important and crucial part of an Attributes of God. So I know that you know this already, uh, but I still think it would be good to dedicate hopefully only one session to it. I I hope we get through it, but we may have to push some of it to, to next week. We'll see. So, does God exist? Now, the first thing, based on last week, hold on, this looks like it needs to be reset. I'm sorry. Why is this not working? It was just working a second ago. I'm sorry, hold on. Okay, there we go. So before we talk about does God exist, there's kind of an elephant in the room because if you recall from last week, last week when we talked about epistemology, we talked about our knowledge of God, we talked about how everybody knows God exists. God has made himself known to everyone. So you could almost feel like, well, we could just skip this because everybody knows God exists, so we don't need this, right? But there's good reason to talk about how we know God exists even though God has made it plain to us. Right? That's the question. If everyone knows God exists, why would we even argue for it? What's the point in even arguing for the existence of God if everybody knows it? But some, I want to provide some quotations from some of my favorite Reformed theologians and how they've thought through this. John Gills, one of the greatest Baptist theologians ever, and he put it this way, Some have thought God's existence should not be a matter of debate since it is a first principle not to be disputed. In other words, when, when philosophers say first principle, That's a fancy philosophical term for something that you know right away. And it's something, a first principle is something you can't prove. It's something you just have to assume in order to prove anything else at all. So like another first principle would be the validity of your own reason. Because remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about you can't prove your own reasoning faculties true. Because you would have to use your reasoning faculties to prove your reasoning faculties. So there's no way for you to possibly validate your reasoning faculties. You just assume that they're true. It's just a first principle. So he's basically admitting what we learned last week, that knowing God exists is a first principle. Knowing that God exists is as basic to you as knowing that you have a mind. That's how primitive and basic it is to your existence. If you know you have a mind, you know God exists. And so he's saying people have told him Everyone knows God exists, so this shouldn't be something we debate with people. But here's what he says. But since such is the malice of Satan as to suggest the contrary to the minds of men, and such the badness of some wicked men as to listen to it and imbibe it, and such is the weakness of some good men as to be harassed and distressed with doubts about it at times, it cannot be improper to endeavor to fortify our minds with reasons and arguments 
against such suggestions and insinuations. So here's basically what he's saying. He's saying, I know that everybody knows that God exists, but there's two other realities. There are some people who are still prone to deny it. There are people who, even though they know it, they're going to deny it. And don't you think it honors God to shut down their denials? So it doesn't matter that everyone knows that God exists. What matters is that there's some people who pretend not to. And so we still need to argue with them. And he says, a second reason is even though there are Christians and good people who know God exists, these arguments against God's existence can weaken their confidence in that. It can take that knowledge away. And so we need to defend them. So that's what Gil is saying. So Gil is saying there's still good reason to prove God exists, even though everyone does know it at a base level. Charles Hodge says something similar. It may be admitted that the existence of a being on whom we are dependent and to whom we are responsible is a matter of intuition. So again, everyone knows God exists. It's just intuitive. He's admitting that. Yet, it may be acknowledged that it is self-evident that we can be responsible only to a person. So everyone knows a personal God exists by intuition. Everyone just knows it. But then he goes on. And yet, the existence of a personal God may be shown to be a necessary hypothesis to account for the facts of observation and consciousness, and that the denial of his existence leaves the problem of the universe unsolved and unsolvable. In other words, it may be shown that atheism, polytheism, and pantheism involve absolute impossibilities. This is a valid mode of proving that God is, although it be admitted that his existence, after all, is a self-evident truth. So basically what Hodge is saying is, yeah, we all know self-evidently that God exists, but there are people out there who distort what God is like, and we need to be able to refute those people, people who say, yeah, God exists, but it's polytheism. Yeah, God exists, but it's pantheism. Yeah, God exists, but it's Unitarian monotheism. And we have to refute those things, and in the process, we would also be proving the existence of our God. So there's still a place for proving the existence of the true God, even though everybody knows it self-evidently and by intuition. And here's probably my favorite quote. Greg Bonson, a good theologian, said this. Here's why he, used, he died of a, a heart surgery not long ago. But here's why Greg Bonson used to argue God's existence. Because he says, in apologetics, we're not called to open hearts. We're called to shut mouths. All right, it's kind of that same thing. Part of the reason why we prove that God exists is not because we think they don't know it and we want to open their hearts to it. We know that they know it, but they're lying and they're blaspheming and we're trying to shut them up. Sometimes the point of apologetics is to shut people up, not open them up to truth, right? Jesse. Yeah. Glad you're quoted, uh, great people in the, the philosophy since we're in philosophy in this class. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John Stuart Mill, he talks about... Um, which we all understand, but I think we forget from time to time that by suppressing false information, we deem it to be true. Mm. And so people who are searching for the truth, if they see suppression of, of, a, of an opinion or a view, they, they think there has to be some truth to it or they wouldn't try to suppress it. Um, and so certainly we live in an era of suppression of, of truth and right. views. And so as Christians, we want to be careful that we don't automatically hear saying like to say, God exists, move on, next, let the government, right? Because then it gives validation, like you're saying, those, those who you quoted before, um, to speak up and seem like it's being the truth instead of us being able to shut their mouths by proving it, by engaging with it. That's a good point. So if I can put it in my own words, it sounds like what you're saying is if the Christian position is basically, listen, everyone knows God exists. We don't need to talk about this. It looks like we're hiding something. Like it looks like we're insecure about it. Right, yeah. Right, yeah, no, that, that's also a good point. I agree. 
So there's still, so in other words, all I want to do in this opening section is say, I'm not trying to refute what we learned last week. We learned last week that God has made himself known to every person clearly, but that does not mean that there isn't a time and place still to, to debate and argue about whether God exists. So before we get into some of the arguments, I just want to really give a brief history. There's obviously a very deep history in proving the existence of God. You could easily do an entire class on it, so we're going to fly through things. Here's just a list, and these were ones that literally, for the most part, I came up with off the top of my head. So there, are, there is not a dearth of uh, arguments for God's existence. Here's many of the arguments that people like to use. Some of these I don't understand. Some of them I do understand, but I think are weak. Some of them I think are really strong. So a lot of apologetics is just kind of theological preference and what arguments you find compelling. And depending on who you're talking about, the person you're talking to might find some of these more compelling than others. And so Christians will argue for the existence of God in different ways. But if anything, this just kind of goes to show how self-evident his existence is, that we just come up every year with about 30 different new ways to prove his existence. I mean, there's just so many different arguments. So you don't even know, need to know what these mean. At the end of the class today, I'm going to give you two or three of what I think are the strongest arguments. Um, but I just wanted to show you that there are a lot. There are a lot of arguments that people have made for the existence of God. Probably the most popular arguments are Thomas, what are called Thomas Aquinas' five proofs. As a matter of fact, um, Thomas Aquinas really became the famous philosopher that he did because of these five proofs. He moved to Italy and he wanted to be sponsored as a philosopher. And he was so poor, he didn't even have pen or paper. So he was literally running around the streets of Italy, begging people for paper so that he could write proofs for God's existence. And when someone finally gave him pen and paper and he wrote the proofs, the reasoning was so amazing. He got admitted to the university, he got sponsored, and then he went on to become one of the greatest philosophers of all time. And then he obviously elaborated on them since then. Now, most of Aquinas' proofs I don't understand fully um, because philosophers use terms differently than we do. So I'm going to try my best to give like a one-sentence summary. But it, you, you really have to study his proofs quite in depth to really understand them. But it's important to the history. So I just wanted to briefly run through them. His first proof is the argument from motion. Again, this one's hard to understand because philosophers use the term motion a little differently than we do. In philosophy, motion doesn't just mean a physical object and movement. Um, but essentially, this argument in, its, in a very simple form could be boiled down to um, all things that have motion have a mover. There's, there's nothing that, that goes into motion without being moved. And so, and, and philosophically and scientifically, you can actually see that the whole universe is in motion. There's motion in the whole universe. And so his argument is essentially that the universe has a mover. Um, the argument from efficient cause, I think, let me actually just give all of them. So actually, I actually can't remember the argument from efficient cause. Um, the argument from necessary being is essentially just... It, this is probably my favorite one, but it's really complicated. It's, it's, it's related to the point is why is there something rather than nothing? And um, philosophically, you just can't get away from there being some necessary starting point. There has to be some necessary being by which all other beings have contingency. Like if you think about it, everyone you meet comes from someone. Like someone, two people created you. And on top of that, you're not just contingent upon your parents to create you. You're contingent on a lot of other things. You have to, you need air in order to breathe. You need blood in order to live. 
And so you are not necessary in that sense. Like you could go away tomorrow and the, the world would keep on moving. Same with me. We're not necessary. We're contingent. But everything in the universe is contingent. Like everything depends upon something. And so the only way for us to ever get to a place where we have everything contingent upon something is if at the end point, there's ultimately someone who's not contingent, just someone who has to exist. It's really, really philosophical. Um, The argument from gradation. Oh, I'm sorry. The argument from efficient cause, it's related to this. I remember it now because we're going to actually kind of talk about it under a different title. It's basically just this. It's the argument that everything that all effects have a cause, right? You can't call something an effect if it didn't have a cause. And his argument here is you can trace all causes back to a necessary uh, effect or an efficient cause, right? So like what caused you? My parents. Well, what caused them? Their parents. And then just keep going back. What caused them? You can even assume evolution for a moment. Well, what caused them? Well, monkeys. Well, what caused them? Well, bacteria. Well, what caused them? Stardust. Well, what caused them? You just keep going back until you eventually get the person to admit like, well, there was just matter and matter eventually evolved. Well, where did the matter come from? What caused it? And eventually you have to work your way back to there's just an efficient cause. An uncaused causer, right? That's the only way we can get to where we're at. So that's what that is, necessary being. Argument from gradation is interesting. The argument from gradation essentially says this. Everything in the universe, anything you can compare, has... Um, gradual differences. There's, there's gradation in everything. So some human beings are taller than others. Some human beings are darker than others. Uh, some pencils write better than others. Everything has this gradual comparison. And so philosophically, Aquinas was able to prove that just like we did with all these other things, there ha- in order for there to be any gradation at all, there would have to be an ultimate perfection. There has to be something that's ultimately perfect with no gradation whatsoever in order for there to be anything of gradation in comparison. Again, they get really, really complex. You don't need to understand them. I just want to give you a really brief intro. And then the argument from design, this one is much easier. We'll talk about this one today. It's basically just that there is intentional design built into the universe. When you study the universe, things are clearly and obviously designed and accidents and chance and random events don't give you design. Um, so these are typically like if you were a philosophy buff, this is would be your bread. You would want to study this for a long time. But I personally am not as big on Aquinas as a lot of other people are. Uh, but there's no doubt that he did a great job and has changed the world with his philosophy. So he deserves just a brief moment of contemplation. So what I want to do today is I want to give you John Gill's eight proofs for the existence of God just so you can see a little bit more simple. His, his proofs are not nearly as sophisticated as Aquinas's. And we're going to take John Gill's eight and then I'm going to condense them into four. And then, we're going to, and then I want to show you what I think are the four, my personal favorite arguments for God's existence. And I think Gill gives them here, but I think we can condense his arguments into four. So first, his first argument for the existence of God is the consent of all men. And essentially, there's never been a nation throughout the history of the world that has not been theistic. You cannot find a nation or a group of people that is not theistic. No matter where you go, no matter their level of science, every single nation in the history of the world, as long as we can study and know the world, Every single person there believes in God. Atheism is a brand new novel religion, and it's an ex- 
extreme minority among world history. It, it barely would even show up on a graph. And some people would say to this, well, this is a logical fallacy because you can't appeal to uh, the masses to prove something. But appealing to the masses is not a proof, but it is evidence. There's a difference between proof and evidence. Um, and so what he's saying is a strong evidence for God exists is that every single person who's ever existed has believed he exists. That, that really is actually a good proof that he exists, that no one up until basically the 21st century ever said he didn't, <laughs> right? So that's actually a pretty strong proof. Um, and then similar, we discussed this last week, but he talked about how all men just, it's related to this. Number two gives rise to number one, but all men just have an innate sense of God. They talk about God. They come up with theories about God. They just know God exists. So our innate understanding of God uh, is proof. Number three, creation. You just can't study creation and not see incredible design, incredible personal detail. Um, creation itself gives proof that God, that it's made by someone much greater than it. Um, what he calls the sustentation of the world. In other words, he's talking about why is it that the sun rises every single morning? How did that happen by accident? Like, how is the world so in its perfect seasons? It's, it's perfectly cyclical. cyclical. Like, we have, we have seasons and falls and harvest and rain and sun. We have, and it's just on this perfect rotation, um, but you don't get that kind of sustenation. You in, in other words, the universe is nurturing us. The universe is giving us a kind of consistent motherhood. And you don't really get nurture and sustenance and providence from randomness, from accidents. So the consistent, nurturing, cyclical nature of our universe um, is proof that God is uh, in control of it. His fifth proof is proof for miracles. Um, the, the, the Bible is historical documentation. Um, the scriptures, if nothing else, even if you don't think they're the word of God, they are at least, bare minimum, reliable historical witnesses and the scriptures document a lot of miracles that if you're going to say God doesn't exist, you need to reckon with this history and you need to reckon with what happened here. And even just people in their modern day lives will oftentimes claim to have encounters with miracles, whether true or not. So people who don't believe in God have a long history of world history filled with claims of miracles that they're going to have to do something with. Uh, another proof for God's existence is fulfilled prophecies. If you ever want to do a really fun study, go buy some study online that shows all of the different fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that have come true. One of my favorite ones is in the book of Isaiah. Uh, um, Isaiah prophesies uh, many, many years prior, after the Babylonians overtake Israel, Isaiah prophesies that a man named Cyrus, he names them by name, he says a man named Cyrus is going to lead a nation called Assyria and the Assyrians will come and destroy the Babylon and they will set you free and send you home. And that's exactly what happens. The exact date he gives by a man with the exact name that he gives and a nation with the exact name. As a matter of fact, this prophecy is so specific that what unbelieving scholars do with the book of Isaiah is they date the book really, really late in history. They date the book after Assyria wiped out Babylon. And if you were to ask those atheistic scholars, why did you date the book so late? They would say this, because the book records uh, uh, Cyrus overtaking Assyria, and he couldn't have known that. Their atheistic presupposition, their denial of prophecies leads them to date the book late. But 
really the book has strong, it's, it's an early book, but he just called it way in advance. And that's just one, right? Fulfilled prophecies, you've got to reckon with that. How, how does that happen without God? And then seven, he put mankind's universal dread of the afterlife. It's just interesting that almost every person you meet, no matter what culture they grew up in, no matter who they are, uh, every single person has this sense that there's more to this life and they're worried about what happens when they die. It's not natural for human beings to believe when we die, we just become dust and nothing happens. You have to be taught that. You have, that has to be dogma that's penetrated to you from a young child. You have to be taught that the natural position of human beings is to believe there's something beyond this life, there's an afterlife, and that's why human beings are scared of death. Human beings are afraid of death. And even the book of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter two tells us that because Jesus died and rose again, now he has released, Hebrews 2 says that he has conquered him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and has set free all those who were captive to the fear of death. Christians don't have to be afraid to die, but that is your natural position. People are naturally afraid of dying, and that's because they just know there's more to this life. People know I'm going to meet God one day. They know that. And then the last one he gives is just the judgments in the world. Um, when catastrophe happens, when calamities happen, they too often happen upon civilizations, upon people, and he's arguing that it's hard not to understand these as God judging people. So this is Gill's. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to think these are strong or good. This is what John Gill came up with. And so what I want us to do is condense into just, I, I get to, as the teacher here, I kind of get some advantage. I get to pick my favorites. So uh, we're going to look at uh, four of my favorite proofs for the existence of God. The first proof for God's existence is called the teleological argument. Teleological. Does anyone know what teleology means or the Greek word telos? Does anyone know what telos means? What's a person's telos? What's that? No, but I kind of, wait, what'd you say? Communicate. No, not, no. Telos, that's good though, because like telephone, stuff like that, that's clever. It should mean that. No, uh, telos means purpose. So whatever your purpose in life is, whatever your meaning in life is your telos. Or if you create a tool, whatever you created it for is telos. So the teleological argument is essentially an argument from design and purpose. The universe bears witness that it has design and if something has design, then it automatically has purpose. That's what design is for. You design things for purpose. So that's why sometimes the teleological argument is also called the, called the argument from design. That the universe is clearly designed, and that means it clearly has a purpose. And you don't get design or purpose from accidents or from nothing. Design and purpose come from creators. They come from artists. They come from makers. Now, we just don't have time to like give thousands. And we could give, seriously, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of all the different ways the created order shows us design and display and meaning and purpose. I don't have time for that. So I'm going to give a couple and then show a video clip. Um, where is that? I already described that. So my favorite, my, my personal favorite is human DNA. I don't know how well you've studied human DNA, but what we've recently discovered about human DNA is it's literally a book. Human DNA is information. Like scientists read DNA the way you would read a book. It's literally code. Like the, the reason we make computers think is because we've learned how to code. 
Coding is information. Coding is like writing a book. It's writing a book, except instead of using letters, you use numbers. And human DNA is informative. It reads like a book. So here's an analogy I want, I want to give you. I want you to imagine you're in an airplane and you're just flying over the ocean. You know, you've, your friend just got his pilot's license and he's just flying you over the ocean and you're just enjoying the scenery. And he tells you there's this little island up here he loves to fly around. And you start flying and you start coming over that island and you look down and in the sand is written S-O-S. What do you tell the pilot? How do you know that? Oh, does it? How do you know that it wasn't just a, an accidental wind pattern? The wind pattern just came into the sand. Or that maybe it was just like a really big snake? You, you don't assume that because accidents, random, they, they, produce, a, they produce things, but they don't produce information. They don't produce information. Information comes from minds. Human DNA cannot be accidental. It, it comes from intelligence. It's a book. Somebody wrote you. Something wrote you. Uh, so human DNA shows design, therefore it shows telos. In other words, another example that people love to use is you, don't, you would never expect to put a keyboard in front of a monkey and have him bang it, and on the other end would come out one of Shakespeare's plays. Something would come out, right? He would, he would produce letters and paper, but it wouldn't be information. You wouldn't get sentences. You wouldn't get, right? So again, accidents don't create information. Information comes from minds. And the human DNA is just one of many, many examples of information that's built into the universe. You could also, another one if you wanted to look up, you could look up fractals. Fractals are at the basic building block of all of life. They contain information. Um, so creation is not accidental. It's not random. It's been intelligently written. Uh, another one related to this is what people call the fine-tuning argument. And the fine-tuning argument merely says, the, in matter of fact, the entire universe is literally hanging on a thread. The universe is created in such a perfectly fine-tuned way that if one little thing was different, the whole thing would be destroyed. And again, you don't get that kind of fine-tuning from accidents. The example I use is my guitar strings. On a guitar, you have to tune the strings, or else it doesn't sound good. If I were to take the guitar and just swing it in the air so that all of the things were started spinning, would you expect when I stopped to have a perfectly tuned guitar? No, you wouldn't expect that. If the guitar is in perfect tune, everything is exactly... Because that guitar, you barely turn, turn one of those tuners, and the string, it, the whole thing's off. The, the strings have to be the exact right tightness. They have to be tuned at the exact right string with each other in order for it to sound good. So you would never expect a perfectly tuned guitar to come out of nowhere. And the universe is this incredibly perfectly tuned guitar, right? And so it didn't come out of nowhere. Let's see if it lows. Oh, no. It was working earlier. stars down to atoms and subatomic particles. The very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully done to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow 
life for the ranch. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life limiting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points of the dial this is, compared to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars would form and life could exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere part in 10 to the 120 parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly need to go or too slowly. To go in either case, the universe would again be life prohibiting. Or another example of life changing. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life related The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life prohibiting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, 
measured or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. <laughs> Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkey with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So any so that's just kind of a, a good little summary on I think I numbered these wrong. Um, what I, I kind of put multiple together. I think the design argument is part of the teleological argument. So one argument for God's existence is that the universe is clearly designed and design equals purpose and creation and intention, right? So another one is the cosmological argument. We'll go through this one kind of fast. We've already talked about this. Um, but essentially, here's how the cosmological argument is laid out. Every effect must have a cause. The universe is an effect. The universe has a cause. So this is obviously a very sound argument. So really the only way to argue against this is to try to argue that the universe is not an effect, but that it is, it's just eternal. So basically, log philosophically, what you're left with is either an eternal God or an eternal universe. But there's no way to have something that isn't eternal. Um, it's just logically, philosophically impossible. And the best thing about this is philosophically, we've always known the universe cannot be eternal because time itself can't be eternal. Chronological order can't be eternal. Otherwise, we would never have gotten to this point that we're at. Uh, so philosophically, we've always known that the universe cannot be eternal because the universe has time and chronological sequence. But we even now know scientifically that the universe is not eternal. And there's a video here that talks about that. Let's consider. Believing that something 
pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. <coughs> but what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have clearly said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then, in 1929, Edward Hubble measured the redshift and light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of the finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arthur Lord, Adam Good, and Alexander Blenkin, proved that any universe which has an average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful, much like God. So that is the, uh, like I said, I think I may have numbered these wrong. I can't remember, because we've only done, this is the third one, right? Is it four? Oh, well, so someone do a review for me. What have we, uh, how many have we covered so far? So we did the teleological, cosmological. And I, th oh, I think where I confused myself is fine-tuning was kind of two, yeah. So in a sense, we're at three. So before, so those are two pretty powerful arguments. We're definitely not going to finish tonight, but I want to get as far as we can. But before we move on to my favorite, uh, this is just upcoming as my personal favorite argument for God's existence, which is why we're going to spend a little bit more time on it. Um, but before we move to my personal favorite, do you have any questions or thoughts about the first two that we covered? Layla. Yeah, the only thought I had uh, was about the multiverse. Um, 
<laughs> yeah. It's really funny. I don't know if funny is the word, but that people are willing to believe in a multiverse, but not God. Exactly. Exactly. And we know why. You know why? Because multiverses don't send you to hell. That's why. Right. Yeah. More than just of like a machine that pops up in universe. Right. It's now this whole theory of like, you know, you went left in the one universe instead of going right. And it's just this whole weird, like, transcendental, <laughs> almost quasi spirit. Exactly. It's very religious. <laughs> yep. No, it's so true. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the multiverse is becoming. From my knowledge, I don't, st I'm no, I don't keep up on like modern secular science, so I could be wrong about this. But to my knowledge, the multiverse is not some, it's, it used to be like just this, this kind of fringe theory among scientists. But it's really becoming like the predominant view because there's just no escaping the fine-tuning of the universe. There's just no getting out of it. They've got to do something different other than just shrug their shoulders and say, I don't, I don't know. And so the multiverse is slowly becoming like the accepted understanding in the academy that there's just an infinite amount of universes. And in, if you have an infinite amount of universes, then in at least one of them, it's going to be this. And that means that you exist in an infinite amount of places and you do one little thing different. And it's this crazy theory of an infinite amount of universes with an infinite amount of, of exact like circumstances just with a slightly different thing in each one for all of infinity. And, and, it's, and that sounds silly, but that's becoming very, very standard belief in, in modern science just because if you go back to the good old days of Bertrand Russell, there's just no way to get around the fact that the universe is clearly not just here. It's just not. You just can't make sense of that. So, But yeah, good thought on that, Layla. I'm glad you brought us back to that. Any other thoughts or questions about the first two and a half, three arguments we looked at? Well, with what time left, let's get as deep as we can then into my personal favorite argument for the existence of God. And this is called the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument. The transcendental argument essentially says this, and we're going to break this down if this doesn't make sense to you, but that God is the necessary precondition of intelligibility. So in other words, what we're saying is unless God exists, you could not know anything at all. If you know even one thing, then you've just proved God exists. The universe we live in, knowledge, reason, thought, nothing is possible unless God is underneath it. So God is the necessary precondition of intelligibility. That's the transcendental argument. That you, intelligence is not possible unless God exists. In other words, a simpler way to put it is God alone makes sense of the tools we use to make sense of the world. So before you can make sense of the world, before you can even ask the question, does God exist, you need God. God makes sense of making sense of things. In other words, he's the precondition of intelligibility. Let's kind of break this down. I want us to think about reason for a second. So here's how atheists want us to operate. Atheists want to say there is no God and we need to give them compelling reasons that God exists. So they want to say my reasoning process has observed the world and it's reasoned that there is no God. Now you need to give me reasonable arguments so that I can reason to the conclusion that God exists. But here's the problem. What is reasoning 
in, an, in a worldview where there is no God. That's what I want us to think about for a second. What does it mean to reason if there is no God? In other words, think about it this way. What is your brain without a soul? If you have no soul and spirit, what are your decisions? What are your thoughts? They are merely the byproducts of the chemical fizzing in your brain. And we could ask the question, what's causing the chemical fizzing? Not an immaterial soul. Because in the atheist world, guess what doesn't exist? Immaterial beings. In the atheistic world, in the naturalistic world, there's no such thing as spirit beings. So you have no spirit or soul. So all you are is your physical biology. So all your brain is, is a pound of meat that randomly fires electricity and forces you to think things. That's not reason. In other words, let me ask you this. Would it make any sense? Now, I did not make up this analogy. Someone else made up this analogy. I want you to imagine that I, I said we're going to have a debate tonight. We're hosting a debate in the Wednesday night class. And the debate is between Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper. And I come up here and I had two bottles of one of Mountain Dew, one of Dr. Pepper. And I shook them up and I took off the tops and they started spewing. And I asked you who won the debate. Which one was more reasonable? Who would you answer? Well, you'd answer no one because none of them are reasoning. Why aren't they reasoning? Because that's just a science project. That's just a chemical reaction, right? Chemical reactions don't produce reason. They don't contemplate and make decisions. They just fizz. If there is no spiritual world, if there is no spiritual beings, if naturalism is all there is, then your brain is just a science project. It's just fizzing. It's just a Dr. Pepper fizzing. And guess what that's not? That's not reason. So before you can even reason to the conclusion that God exists, God needs to exist. Or at least immaterial, supernatural beings need to exist. You have to be a supernatural being beyond your physical composition to even make sense of your ability to reason about whether you are more than a supernatural being or not, right? Hold on, Leila. Oh, and, and really quick, what's related to this is the laws of logic. When's the last time any of you, because in order to reason, how do we evaluate reasoning? Like if I, were to, if I were to say, here's how I know God exists, because purple pizza sleeps fast under the West. Is that a good argument for God's existence? And you'd probably say, no, because I made a statement, and you're now reasoning about it. You're thinking about it, and you're, you're comparing my statement to logic. You're, you're, you're wondering if, if my statement meets logical criteria. Let me ask you this. Where did you get logical criteria from? Your parents taught them to you? Did they make up logic? What is, what is a logical law? Think about it. What is it? When's the last time you've gone to Walmart and you've purchased the law of logic? The law of non-contradiction. What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Right, you get the point. The laws of logic are immaterial. They're also universal. Would it make sense to say uh, blue cannot be red in Colorado, but blue can be red in Nebraska? No, the laws of logic apply everywhere. They're universal, they're immaterial, and they're unchanging. 
They cannot change. It wouldn't make sense to say uh, the Bible's contradictory today on Tuesday, but on Wednesday, I think the laws of logic are going to change. So the Bible might be true on Wednesday, right? The laws of logic are immaterial, universal, unchanging, abstract concepts. And if naturalism is true, if atheism is true, there's no such thing as immaterial, universal truths because everything is nature right? So you cannot make sense of your ability to reason or the laws of logic you use to reason if atheism is true. God in the spiritual world must exist in order for you to even make sense of the reasoning process you used to determine that. I I wanted to give all three of them. We're going to look at just reason, science, and ethics. These things don't make sense without God. God is underneath all of them. And so we've started with reason. The last point in reason, and then I'll let us discuss is this is a good question. Why do you trust that your reasoning processes are actually consistent with the real world outside of you? In an atheistic world, you would have no reason, you would have no ability to know that, nor would you even have reason to believe that. Especially if evolution is true, and all you are is you're just a meat machine. And your only purpose in life which came here accidentally, is to survive. You're a meat machine, and survival is your only purpose. That's atheism. That's evolution. And you know what is most advantageous in that worldview? Not a reasoning process that comports with reality. It's actually a delusional reasoning process that sees everything as a danger. When you see everything as a danger, you live more safely. And when you live more safely, you live longer. The rabbit that sees the bush move and splits is going to live longer than the rabbit that stays there in the bush moving. Now, maybe it's a snake behind that bush. Maybe it's just a little kid who poses no harm to the rabbit. But which rabbit is going to live longer? The one that reasons about, well, that might not be a snake, that might be a kid, or the rabbit that just books it. It's the rabbit that just books it. The less reasonable you are, the better your chances of survival are, provided your reasoning is tuned to fear and not to truth. If atheism is true, if there is no God, there's no such thing as laws of logic, there's no such thing as an ability to reason, and you would have no reason to trust your reason. So the second a person says, give me reason that God exists, they've already proved him. They've already proved it. Because you can't do that without God. Layla, you had a question. <laughs> it can. So, atheists claim that immaterial doesn't exist, correct? Sure. And if they, if, and if they did, then they would be, it would be very difficult for them to determine where it came from right. or what it is. What we should do is point out the fact that their own reasoning is immaterial. Sure. So their own worldview is inconsistent and it just it breaks down. Sure. And that's basically what you're saying. Right. You cannot have anything that is immaterial without God. Right. Yeah, because remember, another name for atheism is naturalism, that all there is is the natural world. But reason isn't natural, it's actually supernatural. 
And in other words, here's, here's, here's what I'll do. And I'm not just asking rhetorically. I really, I want someone to answer me. Okay, I want someone to answer me. I'm going to try to prove a point. Was Adolf Hitler a bad person? Yeah. Why? Okay, why did he kill people? Okay, who made up those plans? He did? Okay, how did he make up those plans? Where did those plans come from? Right, so his plans came from his brain. So does he have control over what his brain thinks? So if I were to hook up his brain and record the electromagnetic movements of when he's making up his plans to kill the Jews, is, is the electromagnetic movement I'm sensing, is that creating the plans? Or is there something underneath it creating the electromagnetic sensing that's creating the plans? Does that make sense? If all it is is just the brain making the plans, then Adolf Hitler is not a bad person. He's just a pre-programmed robot. That's like if I were to shake up Dr. Pepper, open it, and it starts fizzing, and I would go, shame on you. Don't you do that. Why would you do that? That is so evil. We don't blame the Dr. Pepper because it's not an agent. That's just what the, the chemicals process does under those conditions. If your brain is nothing but chemistry, then when Adolf Hitler made his plans to kill Jews, that's just his brain fizzing. That's just what his organic material does under those conditions and under that pressure. The whole understanding, we hold people accountable to reason, think, and make decisions. And if decisions are merely something you have to do and have to think because your brain just happened to fire that, then you're not a reasoning being. You're not a decision-making being. You're just a meat robot. Your brain is just forcing you to do things. Your brain just forced you to pull the trigger. Your brain to force you to think that black people are, are less than you. You're not racist. You're not evil. Your brain is randomly firing and making you do things. There's no reasoning process unless we understand that our brains are connected to some kind of spiritual, rational soul capable of processing, evaluating, and going one way or the other, right? Um, do we have time? We, we could always come back next this next week. You could just let it sit for a week. But l let me just move on. This one, this one will be a little bit more simple. The whole scientific enterprise does not actually make sense if God does not exist. And here's the reason. Because science has certain assumptions built into it. There are many things that science does not prove, but science rests upon. Here's one example. Mathematics. Science does not prove mathematics. Science borrows mathematics. It uses mathematics. It assumes one plus one equals two and it uses it. But science does not discover that. Science uses that. There's, and we could go on and on and on. There's tons of things that science just assumes doesn't prove. The most important foundational assumption of science is what we call induction and uniformity. And here's what it, uniformity means and induction are related terms. And essentially what it means is that the universe exists in such a uniform way that we expect consistency on a day-to-day -day pro process, right? So let me ask you a question. You're di driving down the street. You're in a new neighborhood you've never been in before. And, you, and then the houses are spread far apart, a lot of land. And you drive by a house and it's blue. And then you drive by another house and it's also blue. And then you drive by a third house, and it's blue. What color is the next house going to be? 
color is it? You expect it to be blue. Is it going to be blue? Might be, might not. The fact that I just passed three blue houses does not justify that the next house is going to be blue. That makes sense. So let me ask you a question. How do you know the sun is going to rise tomorrow? How do you know? Guess what most people are going to say, because it always has. Because every house I've driven past has been blue. <laughs> that does not mean the sun is going to rise tomorrow. See, the universe's order, it's consistent and orderly. It's uniform. But the fact that it's been that way in the past is not a justification that it is that way or will be that way. So how does science account? And remember, all of science, all scientific enterprise is built upon this presupposition. There's no point in doing a scientific study on the laws of physics and gravity today if they're going to be different tomorrow. We do studies today assuming the universe is going to remain consistent. But why do we make that assumption? Science, by the way, does not prove that assumption. Science assumes that assumption. Where does that assumption come from? We have a justification for that assumption. Hebrews chapter 1, Christ upholds the universe consistently by the word of his power. Without God, you have no reason to believe the universe is going to remain uniform or stay uh, consistent. We'll listen to this video and then we'll end it and then next week we'll just cover the last couple points and then we'll move on. I want you to hear this. This is, this is going to be, Bonson was a really smart man. I, please don't feel bad if you don't catch all of this. I won't catch all of this. It's really deep, but it's just still a good video of him. It's got good graphics kind of explaining this, the backwardness of trying to do science in a world where God doesn't exist.
next week we'll finish this up and we'll do a review of this one we'll finish it up and then we'll move on to our first attribute so I know this is a lot but I think if we go through it a second time it's going to be much more simple but let me promise you it's not nearly as complicated as it sounds the reason it sounds so weird is because most people are so because we've already bought into God's world we live in God's world of uniformity that it sounds weird to have someone even question it but again if, if me and my friends all got in a circle and someone rolled a die, and it rolled a three. And I were to say, great, I've learned something about the world. When you roll a die, it rolls three. Everyone in that circle would say, well, no, 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 no. It, it, it doesn't necessarily roll three. It's, this is a chance game, so it might not roll a three. Now, why would that be intuitive to you? Because you've already bought into the model that die are not uniform, but random. So all I'm asking you to do is for hypothetical purposes, stop assuming the universe is orderly and uniform. Assume it is what the atheists say it is. It's random. 
and I roll a three today, does that mean I'm going to roll a three tomorrow? No. Is the sun going to rise tomorrow? I don't know. We don't know how randomness works. That's the point of randomness. We don't know what a random universe is going to do tomorrow. We don't know what a random die is going to do tomorrow. So why do science? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And when the atheist says, no, we do know what's going to happen tomorrow, they're assuming uniformity, not randomness. They're assuming consistency and order, not chance. So again, the whole foundation of science is built upon a personal God ordering the universe. If you take God out of the picture, you've lost a rational foundation to do science because you've replaced the orderly universe that God gave us. That's a package deal. You take God away, you take an orderly universe out of the way, now you're left with a random universe and scientific hypotheses don't matter. You roll a dice one day, it's three, doesn't mean it's going to be three tomorrow. So the rocket might fly to the moon today, but it's, we don't know it's going to fly there tomorrow because our universe cannot be orderly. Does that make sense? So the, argu- the transcendental argument, as we're going to finish off next week, is essentially saying that everything you use to exist, only God can give you. Only God can give you reason. Only God can give you morality. Only God can give you science. So if you take God out of the equation, you lose everything. You lose absolutely everything. So we'll, we'll finish that off. I've got one more cool video on ethics next week. And then we'll try to summarize it a little better. And then we'll finally get off to a, an actual attribute of God. But we're a little late, so um, I don't, I don't want to make conversation go too long. But I would still love to hear if you have any thoughts or questions. It doesn't have to be just about that last one. Just about the existence of God in general. Any thoughts or questions or concerns? Layla. Sorry, I just, I, I really love this stuff. That's why I keep mm. Good question to ask the atheist is how can they trust their own reasoning? Right. How can they trust their own thoughts? Sure. If the universe is random, then how do then there really is no way for them to reason. Right. The, the point is to get them to admit that. To get them to to tell you how and why is it that they trust their own thoughts? Right. And what's interesting is what they might say is what Greg, is, let me explain something that Greg Bonson brought up with one of his debate opponents. What they will probably say is their universe isn't random. It is orderly. It's, it's, a, it's a well-oiled machine. That's why, so they would disagree with you. So they would say the universe isn't random. And so Bonson's next point was, okay, you have to justify that as an atheist. If the universe got here randomly, by chance accident, what, what justification do you have that that went away? We got here by random chance accident, but the universe is no longer operating by random chance accidents. And what's the opposite of random chance ac- accident? It's design, control, purpose. So what usually happens is the, the atheist is going to say, I agree with you that the universe is orderly. It's not random. That's why we do science. But what Bonson was trying to get his atheist to justify is, tell, justify to me. How do you know, on what basis is the universe orderly? How did that happen? Why should, how is that the case? And what did De Bonson, Bonson's debate opponent, he says? He says, that's just the characteristic of the universe. In other words, it just is. Can I ask you a question? Is it just is a, a good answer to a question? 
Can you imagine if reverse? Can you imagine the mockery that Bonson would have come under if, if, if the roles were reversed? Imagine they were debating God's existence and the atheist told Bonson, how do you know God exists? And he says, ah, he just does. Or the more sophisticated answer, because God has the characteristic of existence. Does that make sense? I know God exists because he has the characteristics of existence. That's my justification. That's not saying anything, but what's one of the smartest atheists in the world? What's his justification for how you know the universe is orderly? It has the characteristic of orderliness. <laughs> we can't say God exists because he has the characteristic of existence, but they know the universe is orderly because it has the characteristic of orderliness. And that's why Bonson told him that's not a justification. That's not a reason. What we have here is a contradiction in worldview. Imagine, this is kind of silly, but imagine that I had a worldview that said everything is blue. And then you asked me, what color is the grass? And I said, oh, of course it's green. I've got a problem on my hands, don't I? When an atheist has a worldview that says everything comes from chance, random events, and then they look at the universe and agree with you for scientific purposes that, oh yeah, this thing is orderly, controlled, consistent. They've got a problem on their hands. They need to justify that. And what we're going to argue is they can't. They can't justify that without just saying, well, I, I, mean, that's just, that's, I guess that's just the way it is. The sun just rises every day. I don't know what to tell you. But that's not an answer. I can't just say, God, God just, he, I just, he just exists. I don't know what to tell you, right? So the argument again is that atheists cannot, get, they can use their reasoning. We're not saying atheists don't use reason. They use reason. But their worldview cannot account for what reasoning is. They cannot tell you where it comes from if their understanding of the world was true. Same with science. They use science. Atheists are really good scientists, but the scientific method doesn't fit inside of their worldview. They have to borrow it from ours, use it, and then pretend like it's organic there when it's not. Does that make some sense? Again, question, any more questions? It's okay to say this is philosophical gibberish. I don't get it. That's okay. Well, yeah, and that's next week, but that's not what I was getting at. What I was getting at is you only hold human beings accountable for their actions because you presuppose that they had a choice. You presuppose, if I, if I shoot somebody, you send me to jail because you assume I could not have done that, right? If, if someone has to do something, do you send them to jail? If a piano falls and hits somebody, do we send the piano to jail? No, the piano did, it didn't, it didn't, that's just what happened. It, the, the ladder broke, the piano fell. It's not the piano's fault. So when I shoot somebody, why don't you think of me like a falling piano? Why do you say, no, that's his fault? Like seriously, this is not rhetorical, I'm asking. Why is it my fault if I kill somebody? But well, sure. In your, in your house, and so you do have where we are. So we do have that choice because there is that so law where you don't have a choice. Sure. So let's say in the circumstance where I don't have. Let, let's say I'm walking down the street and I look at some guy and he's taller than me and he's better looking than me, and I don't like that. So I take out a gun and I shoot him. Should I go to jail? Why? 
No, but in an atheistic universe, why should I go to jail? And not the morality thing. I know, but I'm trying to help people to see it. So seriously, answer. If it's easy, why should I go to jail? Because I shouldn't have done that. So are you assuming I could not have? Okay, perfect. So Autumn has just made a profound philosophical accusation that I could have, my brain could have made one of two decisions. My brain could have not fired certain chemicals that forced me to raise my gun and shoot the guy. Now let me ask you, what caused those chemicals to fire that could have not caused those chemicals to fire in an atheistic universe? Nothing. It's, it's just my brain. My brain is firing uncontrolled chemicals. So in an atheistic universe, you should not hold me accountable for shooting somebody. In an atheistic universe, everything is matter. So if, a, if lightning strikes a tree branch and a tree branch falls and hits a kid, we don't call the lightning immoral and we don't call the tree immoral. Because that's just matter. And that's what matter does. It was an accident. And guess what? If, if atheism is true, my brain is just more matter. Lightning strikes a tree branch. The tree branch falls and hits a kid. End of story. No one goes to prison. Lightning fires in my brain. My arm raises. It shoots a metal bullet. Kills the kid. No one goes to prison. It's just matter in motion. It's just, it, it's just lightning strikes, my brain fires, it's just, we're all just robots, we're just meat machines. But the second you say, no, you could have put that gun down, you're saying there's more to you than you're just your material brain. There's, there's something... Exactly, so w when I killed someone... You're assuming I reasoned about the situation and I made, and I made a, a bad reason. I chose a bad reason to do something. But in atheistic worldview, I didn't reason. My brain just fired and forced my arm to move and to pull a trigger. So now take it out of the morality thing. Now take it to me and an atheist in an atheistic universe are sitting in a room and I give him an argument for the existence of God. Is he thinking about it? No. His brain is just firing. His brain is just telling him to say, there is no God. That argument makes no sense. He's not thinking anything. His brain is just a chemical reaction inside of his skull making him do things, right? So take the, take the intense morality out of it. The point is, in an atheistic universe, you are your brain. In an atheistic universe, all you are is your brain. And then we have to ask the question, what's controlling your brain? If it's your brain that's making, if, if your brain is what's thinking about math and God and morality, what is making your brain think? It's, it's, just, it's just matter. Like, think of it this way. Your stomach digests things and it can't digest other things. And that's outside of your control. If you eat bread, your stomach's going to go, it's going to digest it. If you eat metal, I, I don't know, eat a rock, I don't know, it's not going to work. So imagine your brain is just like your digestive system. It just, some things fit inside and some things don't. That's not reason. That's not logic. That's not thinking. That's just matter doing what it has to do under these conditions, right? So you can even take the whole morality killing someone out. The point I'm trying to get you to is in an atheistic universe, there's no such thing as thinking. Your brain fires and it forces you to do things. 
And that's the end of the story. So notice the inconsistency. Lightning strikes, forcing it to do things, and we don't get mad at the lightning. But when Hitler's brain strikes, forcing him to do things, we get mad at Hitler. Why? It's because we know there's a difference between Hitler and lightning. We know that one of them is just matter, and the other one is more than matter. We know that. Well, and, and to kind of the, the compliment and the compliment, you're saying um, a lot of evolutionary scientists will strongly argue that there is no such thing as free will. So um, yes. they will argue that you are actually acting And get mad at me. Yeah, exactly. Wait, so, and thank you, Jesse. So free will and reasoning are related. That, that was the example I gave with the shooting. My, what, what I gave with the shooting is when I shoot someone, the government holds me accountable. And the only reason they would hold me accountable is if they believed I was able to reason about my environment and do something different, right? So I wasn't trying to get into ethics and morality. We'll get into that next week. But ignore the ethics and morality. The point is, why do you hold people accountable for their actions? Why do you assume that everything that comes out of my mouth is something I chose to say? If atheism is true, I didn't choose to say it. My brain is just doing it, right? The grass grows, the ants move their sticks, and my brain makes my mouth say these things. There's no reason, there's no logic, there's no thinking. It's just matter in motion. Right, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. That's a great analogy. So one tree sprout grows and sprouts apples. A tree next to it grows and sprouts uh, peaches. And no one looks at one tree and says, you shame on you, you idiot. How dumb, how dumb are you to grow peaches? We know that's just what nature does. Now, instead of trees, one guy grows up and says there is no God. Another guy grows up and produces the fruit that there is God. One of them is not smart. One of them is not dumb. One of them is not right. One of them is not wrong. One of them is not thinking. One of them is not, not thinking. They're both just apple trees. This is just what my organic brain produces. That apple tree produces apples. That tree produces peaches. This organic brain produces theism. And that organic brain produces atheism. But if everything is just material, then things are just growing. Chemical reactions are just happening, right? Hydrogen fuses with this molecule. This molecule fuses with this molecule. And these electrons produce the thought that there is God. I didn't reason about it. I didn't think about it. My brain just made me think it. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say um, 
religion was a necessary step in our evolutionary process to continue to evolve and become better. But then why are we then angry and upset at the production of that <laughs> right. in, in that relation to bettering the, the evolutionary track, right? And then why are somebody saying we have to cut all the trees down that are doing this when that's part of the overall unfree will of the evolutionary grand design controlling us as a species going forward? Right. How do we know that religion is not part of the evolutionary process? So, right, so I'm saying if you, if you embrace that view, right, and you fully believe that free will is, is illusion because you're being controlled by natural selection, by the evolutionary process, then you can't be mad at constantly someone who's like, there's a God, we need to worship God, we need to repent of our sins, we need to abandon our materialistic ways. Because maybe that's the way forward for us as a species. Maybe that's where we're supposed to evolve next. Right. It is. It's brilliant. Exactly. Yeah. It is. Uh, let me summarize it this way. Just so, so you guys don't think this is too big for you, because I promise it's not. This is one of those things where once you get it, it clicks and it's very easy. And here's how it simplifies apologetics. I just gave up three categories for you. Reason, science, and ethics. And I argue that without God, you can't make sense of these things. And so here's what's so amazing. Once you learn how God is necessary for these things to exist, you've now reduced Christianity, or you've reduced every single atheistic argument against Christianity down to three questions. So someone comes up to me and says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the God of the Bible because there are over 200,000 contradictions in the Bible. I've got two options now. I can try to memorize the answer to all 200,000 alleged contradictions and start rattling them off. That's hard work. Or here's what I can do. Oh, that's interesting. You believe in the law of non-contradiction, so you believe in logical laws. If the Bible breaks the law of non-contradiction, then you're saying the law of non-contradiction exists. Let me ask you, Mr. Atheist, what is the law of non-contradiction? Can you taste it? Is it material? No, it's immaterial. Oh, it's immaterial. Is it uh, universal? Does, does the, do the law of logic apply everywhere? Yes. Are they uh, changeable? Can you have one law of non-contradiction, but I have a different one? No. Okay, so Mr. Atheist, in order for the Bible to be a bunch of contradictions, then the law of non-contradiction has to exist. And if it exists, then here's what you're affirming. You're affirming that in your atheistic worldview exists something that is invisible, immaterial, universal, and unchanging. Where did that come from in a universe where all things are material? Because what did, well, by the way, speaking of the attributes of God, when I say this thing is universal, immaterial, and unchanging, what does it sound like I'm describing? God. <laughs> so the atheist has, has immaterial, universal concepts, and then he uses those to say, you know what, I think all things are material. I'm using immaterial laws of logic to determine the universe is nothing but the material world. If the universe is only material, what have we lost? Immaterial laws of logic. So if the universe is only material, the Bible can't contradict because there's no such thing as contradictions, is there? Right? So anytime they say, hey, this is a contradiction, you can show them without God, there's no such thing as contradictions. Same with science. I don't believe the Bible because we've studied the science and the science says this and the Bible says this. Oh, you believe in science? That's interesting. Can you tell me about where science comes from without God? 
Or I don't believe in the Bible because God slaughtered all of the Amalekites genocide. He committed women. That is evil. Oh, my God is evil, you say. Let me ask you a question. Where do the laws of morals come from? The objective, universal, invisible, and material laws of morals. So you see the, the, the benefit to this approach is you simplify atheistic apologetics. You simplify everything down to three arguments and you always put them on the ropes. It's always them having to demonstrate to you how in my atheism, I actually have this invisible Ten Commandments that I can judge your God by. Whoa, 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 whoa. Before you call my God evil, you show me those atheistic Ten Commandments. Where'd those come from? In atheism, I'm going to use this enterprise of science to judge your God by. And I say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. You show me where atheism gives you science. In atheism, I'm going to use reason and laws of logic to refute your God. And I pump the brakes and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. In your atheism, you show me where you get. So you, that's the benefit of this. This is why I love it. I'm not saying you have to love it. I'm not saying you have to like it. But that's why I love it. Is it simplifies atheistic apologetics to three questions. And it always puts them on the ropes. It forces them to account for the tools that they're using. In other words, they've got this machine gun and they're trying to shoot God. And before the bullets get to me, I say, wait, 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 stop. Who made that machine gun? And they look at it and it says, made by God. Right? Who made those laws of logic? I, maybe you would say God made Right? You get the point. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm babbling. Let, I, I, talk, I spoke for too long. Let me leave it open to one more question, thought, or concern. And then next week we'll come back and try to simplify this, summarize it. Exactly. 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 And that's that's another argument. Like that is another argument related to this. If if the world is random, if the world is accidental, if you are random, if you are accidental, why are your thoughts not? Like why are your thoughts not random and accidental? Why are they comporting with reality? Why are they comprehensible? The, all of these things. So again, the, the whole point of the transcendental argument is to show that the world could not be the way it is without God. You can't use reason to disprove God because you need God to have reason. Right? It's, it's impossible for God to be an unreasonable hypothesis because you need God to have reasonable hypothesis. You can't, you can't have those without him. Right? So... It's one of those things, I promise, it sounds really complex, but when it clicks, it clicks. And you just go around like looking for atheists. Like, please, I hope an atheist talks to me today. That's typically what happens. But we'll cover it a little bit more next week, but then we'll finally get to the attributes of God. So thanks for staying an extra half hour. Let's pray.